Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The lone suspect in the Brooklyn subway mass shooting is now in custody. Police say they still don't know why he did it, but NPR's Quill Lawrence reports Frank James will face a federal terrorism charge for yesterday's morning rush hour attack that injured more than 20 people. New York City Police Commissioner Keishant Sewell says after a nerve-wracking 30-hour manhunt, 62-year-old Frank R. James is in custody. Literally, hundreds of NYPD detectives worked doggedly during the last 30 hours to bring this together. We hope this arrest brings some solace to the victims and the people of the city of New York. Those wounded and injured in the shooting and the panicked rush that followed included several children. Authorities flooded public airwaves and media with surveillance pictures of James, and after a tip line call, he was apprehended without incident in Manhattan. Police said they had collected evidence including the gun, a rented U-Haul van, and the clothes James is seen wearing during the alleged attack. The motive is still unclear. Investigators are still reviewing social media posts linked to the suspect. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, New York. Russia may launch another major military offensive in eastern Ukraine at any moment. The Pentagon repeating that warning today as the U.S. and its allies watch Russia's military movements. A senior defense official said earlier that forces were gathering in staging areas on the Russian side of the border and then moving in eastern Ukraine's Donbass region. Ukrainian forces are not only bracing for intensified assault from Russia, but also on guard against Ukrainian separatists in the region who are pro-Russian. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says the Biden administration is authorizing an additional $800 million in security assistance to Ukraine. The United States has now committed more than $3.2 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since the beginning of the Biden administration, including approximately $2.6 billion since the beginning, just since the beginning of their unprovoked invasion on February 24th. Millions of Ukrainians have fled the country since the start of the invasion. The war caused the fastest-growing refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has extended an order requiring masks on planes, trains, and transport hubs. NPR's Ping Wong reports the order was extended as coronavirus cases have begun to rise again. Anyone traveling on planes and public transportation will be required to mask up through May 3rd. That's because the CDC has extended their order requiring face masks during travel. The order has been in place for over a year and was set to expire on Monday. The CDC says they've extended the mask mandate to assess the potential impact of rising cases on severe illness and healthcare capacity. In the past month, the BA2 subvariant of Omicron has taken over, and in the past two weeks, COVID cases have been ticking up in states in the Northeast and Southwest. Ping Huang, NPR News. The Dow closes up 344 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has unveiled her first budget proposal since she took office. The nearly $4 billion spending plan is nearly 6% larger than the current budget. It includes spending more than $200 million in federal relief money on affordable housing. It also includes $31.5 million to fight climate change. Some New England fishermen will face tighter scrutiny over the next four years. New federal rules will require at-sea monitors to be on board all boats fishing for certain species, including cod, haddock, and flounder. Monitors collect data to help regulators determine how to manage fish species. While the program is federally funded, some fishermen say there could be added costs that they would have to cover. Don't be alarmed if you see low-flying helicopters over the Boston Marathon route leading up to Monday's race. The U.S. Department of Energy says the aircraft have special equipment to measure normal levels of background radiation along the Marathon route. 
The agency says it's part of standard preparations to protect public health and the safety on the day of an event. Red Sox are en route to another victory over the Tigers. Dare we say it's now 9-4 to in the eighth inning and in the forecast. Mighty nice today. Breezy and dry. Clouds on the increase overnight tonight, though, with showers off and on, falling to just about 50. Tomorrow, heavy on the clouds, light winds in the mid-50s tops. Then for Friday, partly sunny highs in the mid-60s. 68 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. WBUR supporters include Autism Speaks, recognizing World Autism Month this April. Autism Speaks works to create a world where all people with autism can reach their full potential. Learn more at autismspeaks.org. The latest from Ukraine coming up in just about two minutes on WBUR. First, this is, if you haven't heard, the last day of our fun drive. We're in the last hours of the fun drive. So you listen to All Things Considered. You're listening right now. We hope that means that you have pledged. And if you haven't, please do it right now. This program comes to you every day. For many people, it's appointment listening. We hope that means that we have earned your pledge. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with On Point host Magna Chakrabarty. And we are in the final hours of the fundraiser here. So now's the time for you to call. And as we've been saying... To help us meet this moment, this moment of intense world news, important local news, and of course the national news as well, all the time, all coming at us and at you at at one at once. Excuse me. So what we need is we need everyone to pitch in and do their part so that WBUR can meet this moment with the quality journalism that you need and expect. So call us before time runs out, please, at 1-800-909-9287. Makes a big difference if you can give on a monthly basis. So say $15 a month, $20 a month, $30 a month. It means that generally we can count on your money that much sooner and we can plan our budget. So if something comes along, like we hope not, but a new variant on the coronavirus, we will be ready to provide the information to you because there is a very tight link between what we are able to raise during these fund drives and what we're able to present when we're not fundraising. That means 24-7 what you get at WBUR, what you get at WBUR.org, the newsletters, all the podcasts we have, the events that we have at WBUR, City Space, our performance venue right on Commonwealth Avenue. All of these things are the result of uh, the funds that we've raised in the past. So the coverage that we have, any other growth that we have, is really dependent on your funding right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. If you listen, then you must think it's a worthy investment for your listening time. So please, we hope it is for your dollars as well. And if $10 a month is a possibility for you, or even more, but at least $10 a month right now, you could get our latest t-shirt. It's a bright yellow gold color made of cotton. Fits like a well-loved favorite with a crew neck. And of course, it has WBUR written on it. So you can show your support with pride. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. Thanks so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Alzheimer's Association, providing care and support for those living with Alzheimer's or dementia and their families. Visit ALZ.org. And Worcester Polytechnic Institute, whose approach to research is different. The impact they have is distinctive, too. Find out how at wpi.edu future. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington. 
Some 4,500 civilians have been killed and injured in Ukraine, according to the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights. The office acknowledges that estimate is likely too low due to the difficulty in reaching areas still under siege. And on the battlefield, casualty numbers are likely to be many times greater than that. Despite the mounting human costs, Western governments are warning that the Russian military is preparing for a renewed effort to advance in eastern Ukraine. NPR's Tim Mack joins us now from central Ukraine. Hi, Tim. Hey there. Let's start with the battlefield situation. What is the latest there? Well, since the withdrawal of Russian troops from the area around the capital city of Kyiv, Ukraine has been bracing for a renewed offensive, and there are some signs that it could be coming soon. Uh, British intelligence has predicted that the fighting will intensify in eastern Ukraine over the next two to three weeks. Hmm. And today, a senior U.S. defense official says that Russian forces are staging in and around the eastern Ukrainian area known as the Donbass. These military forces include things like ground troops and artillery and helicopters. Meanwhile, in the south, the city of Mariupol, which has been the scene of heavy fighting over the past few weeks, still remains contested, that U.S. official said. It remains a focus of the Russian Air Force's combat missions over the last day and over the last days and weeks. Despite a devastating weeks-long Russian assault, though, Mariupol has stubbornly held out, even as soldiers have run low on ammo and tens of thousands of civilians have been living in dire conditions with dwindling supplies of food and water. Wow. So with a new Russian offensive apparently in the works, uh, tell us about what the U.S. is doing to ramp up its support for Ukraine. Well, President Biden and President Zelensky actually talked by phone today, and in a statement, Zelensky said they spoke about evaluating Russian war crimes and also military aid. Uh, Biden announced this afternoon he had signed off on another $800 million in military aid, and specifically the kinds of weapons that were being delivered were, quote, tailored to the wide assault we expect Russia to launch in eastern Ukraine. So this new American aid will include things like artillery, armored personnel carriers, helicopters. What is really clear is that all sides expect violence to continue, and in the coming days and weeks, even escalate in eastern Ukraine. And one big question is whether the U.S. equipment and the training necessary to operate that American equipment can be delivered in time to make a difference. Right. Now, President Biden's assessment of Russia's war also seems to have shifted in recent days. He took the step of calling Russian actions in Ukraine a, quote, genocide. What has been the reaction there in Ukraine and and around the world? Well, yeah, the images and information from the war have have prompted Biden to take that step. He chose not to use the term genocide until Tuesday, when during remarks in Iowa, he used it while describing Vladimir Putin's actions. And when asked to explain, he said he used the term genocide because Putin had been, quote, trying to wipe out the idea of even being able to be Ukrainian. Zelensky praised Biden's use of the term, saying that they were, quote, true words of a true leader. Zelensky also added that, quote, calling things by their names is essential to stand up to evil. But French President Emmanuel Macron pushed back against the use of the term, saying that it was an escalation of rhetoric and that it might not be helpful in ending the war between Russia and Ukraine. NPR's Tim Mack in central Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you. About 30 hours after a mass shooting in the New York City subway, Mayor Eric Adams had this to say. 
my fellow New Yorkers, we got him. We got him. The suspect, Frank James, is accused of firing 33 times on a subway train during rush hour yesterday morning. No one died, but 10 people were shot and several others were hurt in the incident. NPR's Jasmine Garst joins us now from New York. Hi, Jasmine. Hi. All right, so what more can you tell us about this arrest? Frank James is believed to be the shooter, and he was apprehended on a Manhattan street corner just a few hours ago at around 1.45 p.m. this afternoon. Uh, He's 62 years old. He was arrested without incident. Bystander videos show police taking him into custody, and it came from a tip. Wow. Okay, so what do we know about this man so far? What we know about him so far is that He had a myriad of prior arrests from various states dating back to the early 90s. And they range from criminal sex acts to theft. Uh, He seems to have lived a very chaotic life, moving across cities and states. And he also posted quite a few videos on YouTube and Facebook criticizing New York Mayor Eric Adams and criticizing his policies on crime and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And he talked about having PTSD. Um, I'm sure in the coming days, a a much clearer picture is going to emerge. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, at this point, what comes next in the investigation? Well, first off, authorities still don't know why he allegedly went on this attack yesterday. Mm -hmm. He is now facing federal charges and up to life in prison for this. So to that end, authorities made it clear this investigation remains open and they are still asking for tips on how and why James did this. Okay, well, while his motive remains unclear, you know, the shooting it occurred as New Yorkers are being asked to start commuting back to their offices, just as COVID numbers are declining. And Jasmine, I understand that you were on the subway today. Like, what was the mood on these trains? What did it feel like to be inside? Well, this is a notoriously tough city. Almost everyone I spoke to told me they were just trying to go about their day as usual. In recent months, there have been very violent incidents on the subway, some deadly. Um, Carlos Manobanda uh, was heading to a doctor's appointment this morning, and he said he was a little bit nervous. I, I asked him, what would make you feel better right now? Uh, more police uh, activity, interaction with uh, customers and uh, presence, more presence, I think. I heard this from a few people on the subway this morning, but you know, a lot of people I spoke to also told me they don't think the answer is more police. They pointed out that NYPD has already increased police presence in the subways before this latest shooting happened. Eli Garcia was heading to work and he told me he wasn't nervous. He just felt that this was an anomaly. And and I asked him what should be done to avoid these types of violent outbursts. Fund services that will help to people that need the help, like homeless services, mental health are a great start. And this is kind of at the heart of the debate here in New York City. And, and I think in cities across the U.S., we're seeing gun violence rise. And, and the question is, is the solution more police, better mental health and homeless services, all of the above? It's hard to say. Yeah. Well, I know that there was some criticism of how long it took to find this suspect. What do you make of that criticism? Was it fair? 
Well, you know, uh, this has to do with the fact that at least one of the cameras at the station where the shooting happened weren't working. And people I spoke to today did express that. Uh, we pay taxes. We pay the transit system. Why don't we get the basics? That is NPR New York correspondent Jasmine Garts. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Thank you. To honor Poetry Month, we're hearing from the four finalists to become the 2022 National Youth Poet Laureate. Today, we meet the South Regional Ambassador. My name is Isabella Ramirez. I am a queer Latinx poet from Lake Worth, Florida, but I'm currently studying at Columbia University in New York City. Ramirez found her love for poetry attending slam poetry competitions in South Florida. It was really seeing other people perform that really inspired me the most to start my own journey as a poet. I think there's just nothing more powerful than youth poetry and youth voices. And really, it's just like us coming together and listening and having this really punchy, powerful moments together and snaps and hollers and whoops and like all of these emotions coming together. Her poem, Mama pays homage to her mother for supporting her. It also shares how she supported her mother when she attended graduate school in her 40s. I'm sitting on my mama's bed, and she's on the brink of breaking down over her homework. I can see the glint of a blinking cursor and the tears glossing over her eyes as her hands search for words in a language all too foreign to her. Being an immigrant and having English um, as your second language, you don't realize how difficult it is to be in the same spaces as your peers who speak English as a first language and be expected to do the same workload when your brain thinks and is bilingual. Your brain is thinking in two languages. So um, that's sort of where in my junior year, I really became that support for my mother. And I, I saw her grow in such a tremendous way. And it felt like a paying back. I um, mean, I know I can never truly pay back my mother for, for the years that she has spent being there for me. But I think to some extent, I was able to do that for her. My mama's English gets told it's pretty good for being an immigrant, to which she replies, you've got some nerve for being a gringa because my mama wasn't a stay-at-home mom for 15 years to be told that her English still has cleaning to do. Her Spanish, to me, is why I speak Spanish. It's why, you know, I'm able to celebrate my culture and even write in a way that is in both English and Spanish. So I think there is, I'm not just exploring her English, I'm exploring all of the language that we share together and she has imparted to me. My mama's English is the reason I can tell her in two ways that she is my everything, mi todo, because her love knows no language. Isabella Ramirez is a finalist for this year's National Youth Poet Laureate. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Coming up on WBUR, will sanctions the West has imposed on Russia work? 
On Wall Street today, stocks rallied. The Dow was up a full percent, 344 points, to close at 34,565. S&P snapped a three-day losing streak. It gained one and a tenth percent to close at 44.47. The Nasdaq surged two percent to finish the session at 13,644. Sunshine mixed with some clouds this afternoon, nice and mild. Showers move in tonight, though not too chilly, about 50 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, gray all day. Showers off and on, highs only in the mid-50s. Should see some sunshine and milder temperatures on Friday. 66 degrees now in the Boston area at 422. Spring is a time for growth. Gardeners plant seeds, buds bloom, and we look forward to colorful days ahead. When you donate, you help this station grow and serve your community. Here's how to give. By calling right now, 1-800-909-9287 or going online at WBUR.org and doing it on this, the last day of our fund drive. We're in the last hours of the fundraiser, so please make your call right now. Just the way that one particular person, one particular listener has. Magnus Chakrabarty, tell us what's happened. Well, you know how, Lisa, we say all the time, because it's true during the fundraisers, that every single person who contributes and every dollar they contribute goes a long way to making sure that WBOR stays strong and independent and continue can continue on its mission. And so far... More than 3,700 WBR listeners have stepped up to do just that during this fundraiser. And we want to thank all of you. That's 3,700 so far. And I know there's going to be more in the next couple of hours. And I want to mention one particular, in, uh, one contributor, I should say, in particular. His name is Dr. Joe Rush. And Lisa, guess what? This afternoon, he gave WBUR $100,000. And... And he Dr. gave Rush, Dr. You. Rush, exactly. And he gave because he says the work we do is important. It's that simple. There isn't much more to it. So thank you, Dr. Rush. And thank you so much to everyone, including Dr. Rush, who has stepped up so far during the fundraiser because this is all about doing what all of us can individually to help WBUR collectively meet this moment with the journalism that we need. So whether you can contribute $10 or $100,000 or anything in between, now's the time to do that. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. And just one more time to say thank you so much to, to Dr. Joe Rush for, for that huge, incredibly generous contribution. We don't have a triple match going right now, do we? <laughs> uh, unfortunately. No, Dr. Rush, thank you so much. We are indebted to you. And I think for all the listeners out there, um, really what it is is saying that we need to meet this moment with all the news that is happening, all the news that wasn't predicted to happen. Um, and we don't know what's going to be happening in the next months in the next year. What we do know is that we want to be prepared to um, cover it for you because we're as strong as your contributions are. We're that much stronger because of the contributions of 3,700 people who have so far given during this fund drive and Dr. Joe Rush, who um, was so wonderful to give $100,000 this afternoon. This does not bring us over the top of our budget right now, so we still need to raise the rest of the amount by 7 o'clock tonight. The fundraiser will be over at 7 o'clock. Don't let it end without you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And Lisa's exactly right. Dr. Rush's uh, contribution was incredibly generous. All of our contributors so far have been generous, but we're not there yet. We only have two and a half hours left in this fundraiser. So don't give up. Now's the time to call 1-800-909-9287.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington. Do sanctions work? That is a question worth asking as U.S. and other Western nations keep hammering Russia with economic sanctions. If the war in Ukraine drags on for months or even years, how many more sanctions can the West impose? And what is the end game? Emma Ashford is an expert on foreign policy at the Atlantic Council, and she joins me now to talk about this. Welcome to All Things Considered. Great to be here. Russian President Vladimir Putin said yesterday the new sanctions did, quote, achieve certain results. So how have sanctions impacted Russia's economy? So far, the sanctions that we've put on Russia's economy have caused the ruble to go into decline. I think up to 600 multinational corporations have left Russia. Um, And so the Russian economy is suffering from sanctions. What we don't know yet is the extent of that suffering and whether or not it will translate into into any actual policy change. Well, first, how are these sanctions harming ordinary Russians who have nothing to do with the war? I mean, I've spoken to people in Russia who say it's hard to travel abroad now. It's hard to even access foreign-made medicines. Inflation is high. So how do these sanctions affect the ordinary person? In theory, targeted financial sanctions are meant to hit a government and not the people within a country. But in practice, that's very difficult to do. What we actually see in much of the studies that have been done on sanctions is that leaders, particularly in authoritarian states, are very good at insulating themselves from the effects of sanctions. Certainly, Vladimir Putin himself has been sanctioned. The people around him have all been. But that doesn't necessarily mean that their lifestyles at home are going to suffer. They may be able to pass some of that burden on to other people inside Russia. Mm -hmm. And so this, again, is one of those big problems. And unfortunately, the history of sanctions suggests that we're good at causing the economic pain. We're not good at getting policy changes out of it. Well, this is fascinating. And I think this is the time to just step back and ask, what is the actual goal of these new sanctions on Russia? I mean, is it to end the war or is it to topple Putin? It depends who you ask, to be perfectly honest. These sanctions were initially intended to deter the Russians from invading. That obviously didn't work. So now the sanctions are in place. They are supposed to be putting pressure on the Russian government to end the war. That doesn't appear to be happening so far. And it's not clear whether even more sanctions would necessarily do that. So then you get into this question that often arises, how long do you leave the sanctions on? And over time, does the goal sort of just shift from concrete policy change, like end the war, over to something more akin to weakening the Russian government over the long term? And I fear that that's where we're sort of sliding into with the Russia sanctions. Now, of course, we are in a globalized economy. Some nations are dependent on Russian exports like gas and oil. How will that factor into 
how long the West can keep imposing these sanctions? The sanctions that we have already imposed, those can be maintained for quite a long time, I would think. The interesting question is about the sanctions that we have not yet imposed. And and I Mm. think it's very doubtful that we're going to see Europe impose large-scale energy sanctions simply because European economies are so dependent on that gas that it would almost certainly cause a recession. That is the sort of step that might actually push the Russian government to think twice about the war in Ukraine, but it's one that I think the West simply can't sustain right now. What about lifting some sanctions? Could that actually incentivize Russia to change course? So if we wanted to get something out of these sanctions with Russia, one of the best things that we could do is be specific about the ways in which those sanctions could be raised in exchange for Russia stopping conflict, withdrawing some of its forces, you know, a phased approach to lifting them that could help to end the conflict. Um, Unfortunately, and again, as we've seen in many previous cases, that can be politically problematic. You can imagine how difficult it would be even here in the US to talk about lifting sanctions on Russia after everything that has happened in the last month and a bit. Emma Ashford is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. The Museum of Science, featuring new ways to think about climate action. See how you can make a difference as we adapt to a changing climate and landscape. Tickets at mos.org. And Jean Brooks Landscapes, dedicated to designing, constructing, and maintaining imaginative gardens for 32 years in greater Boston. Photos at jeanbrookslandscapes.com. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. In New York, after a 30-hour manhunt, the suspect in yesterday's mass subway shooting in Brooklyn is in custody. 62-year-old Frank R. James was arrested without incident on a street in Manhattan. He's accused of opening fire in a subway car, leaving 10 people shot. All are expected to survive and more than a dozen injured. Chief of Detectives James Essig says the suspect has a criminal history in several states, but that the gun he used was legally registered to him. The gun used in this, a 9mm Glock, which was recovered at this crime scene, was bought, was purchased by Mr. James in 2011 in Ohio. James will be arraigned in federal court on a terrorism charge. There's no word on a motive. A new report from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe says Russia has broken international humanitarian law during its invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Jackie Northam reports the OSCE also found that the deliberate attacks by Russian soldiers in Ukraine amounts to war crimes. The 108-page report by the Regional Security Forum found clear patterns in Ukraine of violations of international humanitarian law by Russia. The U.S. ambassador to the OSCE, Michael Carpenter, said in one example, the report looked at the March 9th attack on a maternity hospital in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol. And it determined significantly that the hospital was destroyed by a Russian strike, and it concluded that the attack was deliberate with no effective warning given and therefore that it constituted a clear violation of international humanitarian law and a war crime. 
Carpenter said the report finds many instances of targeted killings, forced disappearances, rape and executions by Russian fighters. Jackie Northam, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Leaders in the Massachusetts House are resisting Governor Charlie Baker's calls to return some of the state's record revenue surplus to taxpayers. Today, House leaders unveiled their version of the state's nearly $50 billion state budget for the upcoming fiscal year. WBUR's Steve Brown has more. The House proposal represents nearly a four and a quarter percent increase over the current year's budget, but House leaders say much of that may be eaten up by inflation. And while state revenues were up $5 billion last fiscal year and are $2 billion ahead of projections this year, Speaker Ron Mariano says he favors using the money on programs that will strengthen the underpinnings of the low and middle class workforce. These good times may not roll forever. We want to make sure that we have money in case there is a sudden downturn. House members have about a week to file amendments, and there will likely be amendments seeking to return money to taxpayers. The full House takes up the matter a week from Monday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The town of Randolph is getting a million-dollar federal grant to build a new community health center at its high school. It'll be open to students and town residents. A recent wellness assessment in Randolph described long-standing barriers to health care services. Supporters of the new facility say it will help address those barriers. In Western Mass, Williams College will no longer require students who need financial aid to take out loans or get jobs in order to pay their school costs. School officials say starting next fall, students accepted at Williams who need help to pay their way will get grants instead. College President Maude Mandel says this will give students more time to focus on their studies and other interests. We're trying to uh, open up the full range of opportunities for all students who attend Williams College to explore Uh, to learn, uh, to grow academically and personally uh, while they're on campus. The dean of students calls the move a major step toward true affordability. The policy change at Williams is expected to cost the school nearly $7 million a year. In the bottom of the eighth inning, it's 9-5. to Red Sox leading the Tigers in Detroit in the final game of their series. And the forecast sunshine mixing with some clouds this afternoon. Nice and mild, 70 degrees now in parts of the Boston area. Showers move in tonight, not too chilly, down around 50 degrees. And for tomorrow, should have overcast skies pretty much all day long, intermittent showers, highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR, it's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to transform the political landscape of Europe. It has largely unified the European Union. And in Finland, public support for joining NATO has skyrocketed, which means the country is now considering a bid to join the military alliance for protection from Russia. Today, the country's prime minister, Sanna Marin, said the government will make a decision soon. I won't give any kind of timetable when we will make our decisions, but I think it will happen quite fast. 
uh, within weeks, not within months. Russia's foreign ministry warned of, quote, military and political consequences if Finland joins NATO. NPR's Frank Langfitt is following the story from London. The Finnish government released a report today on the war's impact on the country's security. The report took no position on joining NATO, but officials said the invasion has increased threats to Finland, which shares an 830-mile border with Russia. Antti Kakonen, Finland's minister of defense, spoke at a news conference. The security situation in Europe and in Finland is more serious and more difficult to predict than it has been for decades. Finland is not facing an immediate military threat. But we must look to the future as well. Finland must be prepared for the use or the threat of use of military force against it. Pekka Avisto, Finland's Minister of Foreign Affairs, said Russia's invasion of Ukraine has shown Moscow's alarming willingness to take big risks. Russia is uh, capable of uh, concentrating more than 100,000 soldiers in one spot against one country, even without uh, the mobilization of the reserves and, and so forth. This is a scary scenario, of course. For Kaikonen, the defense minister, the lessons for Finland are clear. It is important to be ready and able to repel large-scale offensive operations on several simultaneous fronts. The quickest way to ensure that is to join NATO. The military alliance is led by the U.S. and provides mutual protection for all 30 allies against attack. During the Cold War, Finland remained neutral to avoid Russia's wrath, and public support for joining NATO has always been low, until now. Henry Van Hannen is a foreign policy advisor for Finland's National Coalition Party, which supports joining NATO. We have seen uh, spikes go up to uh, about 20 percent of in favor of NATO. After the attack, oh, I think already the first poll on NATO came out, and already by then we saw a jump up to 50 percent in favor. Have you ever seen any uh, change in public opinion on a foreign policy issue in Finland like this no, before? No, abso- absolutely not. This is this is very exceptional. Two days ago, a poll showed support at a staggering 68 percent. What is your sense of the likelihood that Finland will apply to join NATO? Very likely. I would say, at this point, 100 percent likely. There is very strong support in NATO for Finnish membership, but any bid could take months or even a year, as all 30 allies must approve it. Finland worries that, in the interim, Russia will try to punish it with cyber attacks or a troop buildup on its border. Foreign Minister Havisto says that's when Finland will need help. There comes this kind of period where it's very important that uh, NATO countries also understand the the risk of that period and, and, and do what they can. Havisto says that could include NATO countries showing support by doing joint military exercises with Finland. Neighbor Sweden is also considering joining NATO, although it's not as far along in the process. When Russian President Vladimir Putin sent troops into Ukraine, he said it was in part to prevent the country from joining NATO. It now seems increasingly likely that his actions will lead to the alliance's expansion. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to helping improve the lives of people with sickle cell disease. Now hiring for cell and genetics therapies teams. More at vrtx.com. And the Boston Pops. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of the musical legacy of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. bostonpops.org. 
Hi, I'm Eleanor Beardsley from NPR. It's very important that reporters document what is happening on the ground in Ukraine so that you hear the voices and stories of the people affected, not just those in power. NPR is able to bring you coverage from Ukraine because you support this vital work to bear witness. Your donation to this station makes it possible. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Very good reasons to do that right now because we have more news coming our way. Just heard a great story on the war in Ukraine and how it's uniting Europe, something that Russia may not have counted on when it sent troops into Ukraine. Have many more stories coming up that you will want to listen to and that you'll likely think are very much deserving of your pledge. Right now is a great time to make a gift at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR. Org. For one thing, this is the last day of our fun drive. We're in the last hours, and Magnet Chakrabarty for another thing. There's a dollar for dollar match. Oh. <laughs> Oh. Did I sound surprised? I don't mean to sound surprised. I think it's it's mostly delight. It's more it's delight that in the last uh, two hours and ooh, twenty minutes of this fundraiser, uh, we've had a group of generous listeners step up uh, and are willing to give their money to match your monthly contribution, dollar for dollar. So. We keep trying to find the things that will pull the last group of you in who are thinking about con- contributing but just haven't quite picked up the phone. Now's the time to do it. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And the reason why, the deeper reason why, is the kind of reporting that you hear on WBUR. You just heard Frank Langford, who's back in London now, talking about uh, Finland and NATO. Um, he's NPR's London correspondent, but he has also logged hundreds of miles covering Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And he talked with us about how important listener support is to him and his ability to get us those stories that we need. Money in a war zone is crucial uh, because you've got to be, you're operating in a, a society that's coming apart, basically. It becomes very difficult to operate. And so, you know, when I'm, I'm, leaving Odessa after the missile strikes, I'm stopping and I'm loading up on peanuts and dried fruit at a convenience store in a long line of people, knowing that that's what I might be eating for the next three days. And it's good to know that I can get that food. Having, you know, just those financial resources that come ultimately from our listeners is hugely important for us to be able to be the eyes and ears of the country at a moment of great historic importance. And that's having an effect all over the world right now. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. Frank mentioned uh, that the fact that uh, your contributions help uh, reporters like him and Eleanor Beardsley and Eric Westerveld uh, and Leila Fadel be the eyes and ears of the country. And we know that many of uh, us certainly benefit from what they tell us in their reports. We also know that U.S. leaders benefit as well. Many times we've heard them on the air saying, thank you so much for your reporting on the ground, because they are making some policy decisions based on the reports that they know are credible, that they hear from NPR's reporters on the ground in Ukraine. So ultimately, this is where your money is going. Your dollar has value. And especially right now, your dollar has doubled the value because this is a 
about matching grant on the table right now. So if you can make a $10 a month pledge, $15 a month pledge, $100 a month pledge, that will be doubled dollar for dollar right now. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Know that we are grateful for whatever you can give as a gift to WBUR right now on this, the last day of our fund drive. You know, when Frank Linkfit mentioned uh, being in Ukraine and having to stop at a a convenience store that happened to be open to load up on peanuts and dried fruit and how he draws a straight line between listener contribution and his ability as a reporter in a war zone to do that, to eat. And it's quite remarkable when you think about it because radio might feel sometimes like an ephemeral thing to support, but we're talking about real concrete needs. We're talking about supporting the lives of reporters in war zones. We're talking about the microphone that Lisa and I are talking into right now, the computers. I'm looking across the glass at our at our control room. We're talking about the complex electronics that take these voices, put them out on satellites, and then put them to you on your phone or at home. And then, of course, we're talking about the people, the people that bring you the news and information that you rely on. So these are real things. It's not ephemeral. This isn't some kind of imaginary endeavor that we're undertaking. Your money is directly going to support the real needs of WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call to provide that kind of concrete support and assure that journalism stays strong and independent as well. And if it's easier for you to do that online, go ahead and do that at WBUR.org. $10 a month, $15 a month. If you can swing $100 a month, we would so appreciate it. This fundraiser is coming to a close. And right now you can double your gift to WBUR, the value of it, double your money because we have this matching grant on the table right now. It only is good while the supplies last, so please get your call in right now, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you. It's the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, when faithful around the world abstain from eating or drinking between dawn and sunset. Each day's fast is usually followed by a feast— In the southern Indian city of Hyderabad, one delicacy in particular has become a cherished Ramadan tradition. It's called halim, and it's not just for Muslims. So Shmita Patak recently got the chance to see how it's made. The Royal Hayat Convention Center in Hyderabad usually hosts wedding receptions. Nowadays, it's a kitchen for Pista House, one of Hyderabad's top restaurants. When I visit one afternoon during the first week of Ramadan, preparations are in full swing for that day's halim. A big grinder crushes cardamom pods. A few feet away, men peel a mountain of onions. Meanwhile, the star of the halim, the goat meat, has been cooking for nearly eight hours. process started at night, four o'clock, so the mutton comes. Muhammad Modis Ali walks me through the process. His family owns Pista House. He leads me to an open space where some 20 furnaces are blazing. The halim takes 11 hours to cook, so it's very easy to eat. But it's very hard to cook and you cannot stand in the kitchen, like it's a lot of smoke. And it's so hot here, you can, uh, my eyes are watering. (laughs) After the meat becomes tender, a mixture of dals or lentils and coarsely ground meat is added to it. Then come the spices. So this is the mix of masalas, spices that will ultimately go into the halim. Cumin, cinnamon, cardamom, black pepper, rose petals. This is followed by the most physically challenging part of the recipe. We like smash the halim with wood sticks for around 20 minutes or 25 minutes. 
That's what they're doing right now. Two cooks pound the meaty mixture with long wooden hammers. It gives the halim a soft, smooth texture. But it's a real workout. A workout that city historian Sajjad Shahid remembers from his childhood, when his family used to make halim at home every Ramadan. It was only in the 1980s or 90s that the dish became commercialized, he says. But not exactly halim, it was called haris. Shahid says haris was brought to India many centuries ago by the Arabs, who were employed by Indian kings and sultans as mercenaries. The personal bodyguard of the ruler uh, used to be mostly Arabs. You had huge, huge populations of Arabs. There were entire armies of Arab soldiers in India, Shahid says, and haris was their meal of choice. It was practical, not too complicated, and it could be made in one pot. Shahid recalls a 17th century poem where the poet describes the deikh, the vessel in which halim is made. So he says the deikhs used for cooking halim were as large as the ears of elephants. Over the years, Hyderabadis tweaked the dish and a new version was born. Today, Hyderabadi halim has many fans. Vaishak Damodar says he eats at least one plate almost every day during Ramadan. I roam around the city and I try halim at all different spots. At the roadside stall where Damodar is relishing his halim, most customers, including him, are Hindu. Some Hindus don't eat meat, and in recent years, meat has become a point of tension between Hindus and Muslims. Damodar says that's all politics. See, for me, halim is a feel-good factor. You just come, you eat, go. Food brings a lot of people together. That's what I can say. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Hyderabad, India. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Knowing where to invest your money these days can be hard. There's Bitcoin, NFTs, meme stocks. And if you're looking for a way to put your money where your morals are, there's ethical investing. But how do you make sure your money is having the impact you really want? From NPR's Life Kit, Lauren Magaki breaks down how ethical investing works and whether it might be right for you. Financial planner and consultant Manisha Takor says ethical investing is a lot like love. Everybody has sort of their own definition and take on it, and everyone feels they've landed on it at different points. Some folks may be looking for a focus on the environment, animal welfare, or gender equality. Whatever your cause may be, the idea that the money you invest can generate meaningful change and a profit is mostly referred to as ESG investing. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And like love, there are no ESG soulmates here. But there are two main strategies for finding a good match. Option one, choose a mutual fund or exchange-traded fund that goes super specific on one issue. Like the ETF SHE, S-H-E, where you are just focusing on issues around gender parity in the workplace. 
Or choose a fund that goes really broad, one where, generally speaking, the companies in the fund are doing some form of good. But you may not agree with all the choices the fund makes. It could include a fossil fuel company that's doing really well on diversity goals, or a company whose ethics are in a gray area. You know, is nuclear clean energy, or is nuclear not clean energy? And regardless of what you decide, Tacor says it's crucial to protect your investments by seeking out the right kinds of ESG funds. The biggest red flags are fees. She says stick with fees of about half a percent. Otherwise, those fees add up over the course of decades, especially when we're talking about a retirement plan. That's going to be the best place to start off because it's been vetted by your company while they're wearing a fiduciary hat. If your company doesn't currently offer this, Tacor says, send an email to your human resources department. Express an interest in socially responsible investment options for your 401k. Tacor expects that there will be many more ESG options in the near future. And she says the industry has changed a lot. When she first started 25 years ago, ethical investing was mostly about excluding just a few specific companies. Groups would start uh, saying, I want no sin stocks, no alcohol, no tobaccos. To be clear, ethical investing isn't a cure-all. It cannot erase the very real harms done to the planet and society. There are some people who say the whole idea of ethical investing is a farce. It's just something we've done to make ourselves feel better after we've ruined the planet. But Takor feels less cynical. She says it's a win that the word ethical is even tied to business nowadays. Over time, I believe that ESG will likely not even be a phrase in and of itself. It's just part of doing business. Of course you pay attention to these factors. And she says, while we may not see immediate change, she's heartened to see that folks are at least trying to push that boulder up the hill. Lauren Migaki, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. And Peabody Essex Museum with Climate Action, Inspiring Change, featuring youth artists from New England. Coming soon. For tickets and more information, visit PEM.org. I'm Layla Falden. It's exciting to start something new, a job, a new book, a binge-worthy podcast. If you've never given to this station before, now is a great time to start. Here's how to donate. By calling 1-800-909-9287 or going online at WBUR.org. We just heard that story about ethical investing and how it works. We think investing in WBUR is the ethical and practical and forward-looking thing to do. We hope you agree. And when you make a call right now, when you make a gift in support of WBUR, you will get your money doubled. And that certainly is the wise thing to do. I'm Lisa Mullins with Magna Chakrabarty. Hi there, Lisa. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And definitely do it now. I know you think, God, Magna, you're saying that all the time when you get on the air to fundraise. But I actually really mean it because She's we only so have two. I am. Uh, like, high bar. That's the bar we have here at WBUR. But 
We only have two hours left now, and so it's time to put the pedal to the metal. And we are asking for your contribution, and especially your monthly contribution, if you can, of any amount that works for you per month. And we're asking for your support uh, in the form of a monthly contribution because the news is just constantly changing. The intensity of the demand on the resources that WBUR has is con- is changing with that news as well. And so our CEO, Margaret Lowe, says this is where monthly giving really plays an important role. The very definition of being a news organization is that there will be stories we can't predict, and we need to be there for our listeners right away to shed light on the most pressing issues of our time. And while the world is unpredictable, monthly giving allows us to predict or properly forecast our revenue, since we know how much money we can expect to have across the year and we can plan accordingly. We also know that people who give monthly, sustaining givers generally stick with us because they don't have to think about making a donation. It's automatic and it's easy. And if we're gonna continue to thrive, we do need more people to become monthly givers, sustaining members of WBUR. 1-800-909-9287. That is the number to call to become one of those sustaining members of WBUR. Help sustain this news organization. Again, the number is 1-800-909-9287. And you get your money doubled right now. So if you can make a $20 a month gift, we get $40 out of that. You give 20 If uh, you make a $40 a month gift, we get 80 You get you give 40 And, <clears throat> of course, when you uh, give on the monthly basis, you can always change the amount depending on how your budget changes. So please take advantage of this matching um, uh, offer on the table right now in the last, we're almost in the last two hours of this spring fund drive, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Again, you get your money matched if you call now, thanks to a group of generous listeners. So when you call with a monthly contribution or go online and make your contribution that way, these listeners will match your contribution dollar for dollar. So make it go twice as far. But you only have to do half of that work. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And when you do that, you help keep WBUR strong. You help keep all things considered strong with Lisa Mullins bringing you the news and information and changes in world and local events that may have transpired over the course of the day. And not only that, they don't just bring you the headlines. They bring you the deeper context, help you understand why those changes happened in just you know the previous eight or ten hours. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And also, we heard Margaret Lowe mention a little bit earlier, uh, monthly giving. If you can give $20 a month, $30 a month, $40 a month, all of that is matched right now. Monthly giving is the safety net that we have when news tosses us a curveball, when things happen that we don't expect. Ukraine is a great case in point. Uh, during our last fund drive, we never expected that this would be one of the major stories in the news and that it would be a major expense for NPR and therefore for WBUR as well. So because it is a hugely important story, hugely consequential, we know that you rely on a solid, good source of news for this, and that is WBUR. So please help us pay for it to defray the costs. one 800 909 9287wbur.org. Get your monthly gift right now, matched dollar for dollar. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research.
At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at ALZ.org. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com NPR. From Subaru, in partnership with its retailers and the National Forest Foundation, Subaru helped replant more than one million trees in areas devastated by wildfires. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. We got him. New York City Mayor Eric Adams confirming at a news conference today authorities had taken into custody the man accused of shooting 10 people aboard a Brooklyn subway yesterday. Authorities are charging 62-year-old Frank R. James with a federal terrorism offense. New York Police Commissioner Kichant Sewell says it was a team effort. I want to commend all of the investigators and analysts who took part in this all-hands-on-deck investigation. Literally, hundreds of NYPD detectives worked doggedly during the last 30 hours to bring this together. They did so in tandem with a vast number of our law enforcement partners. Authorities say James was taken into custody in Manhattan's East Village neighborhood. He's accused of unleashing 33 rounds aboard the crowded subway car. All the victims are expected to survive. James does not appear to have ties to any terror group, but the charge applies to violent attacks on mass transit systems. President Biden is authorizing an additional $800 million in security assistance for Ukraine. NPR's Asma Khalid reports it comes as Russia seems to be regrouping and refocusing its war efforts on the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. In a statement, President Biden says this aid will include additional weapon systems that have already proven effective in the conflict and, quote, new capabilities tailored to the wider assault we expect Russia to launch in eastern Ukraine. That includes artillery systems, artillery rounds, and armored personnel carriers. The president said he's also approved the transfer of additional helicopters. To date, the U.S. has already sent over $2 billion worth of military assistance to Ukraine since Biden took office. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. Gun owners in Georgia can now carry a concealed firearm without a permit. Governor Brian Kemp signing the state's Constitutional Carry Act yesterday. For member station WABE in Atlanta, Christopher Alston has more. Governor Kemp signed the bill at a sporting goods store west of Atlanta, where he said he previously purchased a handgun for one of his daughters. SB 319 makes sure that law-abiding Georgians, including our daughters and your family too, can protect themselves without having to have permission from your state government. The Constitution of the United States gives us that right, not the government. Kemp campaigned on permitless carry when he ran for governor in 2018, but says he didn't have the votes until this year, when he's also facing a Republican primary challenge. The new law doesn't change where a gun can and cannot be carried. It takes effect immediately. 
For NPR News, I'm Christopher Alston in Atlanta. The government's main wholesale inflation gauge seems to be echoing, if not exceeding, the price hikes being seen at the consumer level. Labor Department reporting today the producer price index, which measures the cost of goods before they head down the pipeline to consumers, was up 11.2 percent year over year. On Wall Street today, the Dow was up 344 points. The Nasdaq closed up 272 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Dorchester woman who has been protesting outside Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's house has pleaded not guilty to assault and other charges after an incident yesterday. Police say Catherine Vitale was escorted outside Boston City Hall yesterday after she tried to interrupt a news conference the mayor was housing, uh, was hosting, that is, by shouting with a megaphone. She was arrested after police say she pushed an officer while she tried to force her way back into City Hall. She's due back in court next month. It's going to cost Massachusetts residents more to attend college in the UMass system in the fall. Trustees voted today to raise undergraduate tuition by 2.5% for in-state students. It's the first tuition increase since the pandemic began. Room and board at the state's four UMass campuses will also rise between 2 and 4%. In-state tuition throughout the UMass system will range from fourteen dollars to $16,000 per year. A California company has reached a settlement over accusations it illegally leased dogs in Massachusetts. The practice of leasing dogs on a monthly basis is not allowed in the state. The company Monterey Financial Services will have to transfer full ownership of the leased animals. It also has to repay $175,000 to customers and pay $50,000 to the state. In the forecast, look for increasing clouds through the evening hours. Showers move in tonight, not too chilly, just about 50 degrees. Tomorrow should be gray all day. Showers off and on highs only in the mid-50s. 68 degrees now in the Boston area at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CrowdStrike. Their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft. At home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. Coming up on WBUR in just a couple of minutes, President Biden announces a new $800 million package of military assistance to Ukraine. We'll have details coming up in just a couple of minutes. Very briefly, we want to give you an update on where we stand in this fund drive. It is ending in less than two hours now. The entire fundraiser will be over in less than two hours. If you haven't made a pledge yet for this radio station, you can do it right now. We hope you will at one 800 909 9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Meghna Chakrabarty, and there's a great reason to give right now. You get a dollar-for-dollar match because a group of generous listeners have decided to uh, help you make your money go twice as far. So when you call 1-800-909-9287 with your monthly contribution, these listeners will match that contribution dollar-for-dollar. So make it go twice as far. 1-800-909-9287 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call to make your $10 a month, turn it into $20 a month. 15 makes it $30 a month. 100 makes it $200 a month for WBUR. So 800-909-9287 is the number to call. Just wanted to say something important. Red Sox have just ended a winning <laughs> series in Detroit today. Boston beat the Tigers 9-7 to in their second win in three games. We are so grateful to those of you who've chosen to listen to WBUR. Okay, maybe not for our vast sports reporting, such as that little little tidbit right there, but for everything that you hear. Yes, sports reporting, especially the wonderful information that you get 
from uh, Chris Siderick at WBUR, from National Public Radio as well, but also the in-depth stories that you hear on All Things Considered, on Morning Edition, on On Point, on uh, Here and Now, that have to do with, of course, the pandemic, with what's happening uh, in the economy, with inflation, with what's happening, of course, in Ukraine as well. This is where your money goes. It's a really transparent transaction. You get back what you give to the radio station, and right now, your money will be doubled. So if you give $15 a month, the match on the table will turn it into 30 a month. If you can swing $100 a month, it becomes 200 for WBUR. So make the contribution right now because we only have an hour and 50 minutes left in this fun drive. We would love to include you, and we are so grateful when you make a call and pledge at 1-800-909-9287 or when you go online at WBUR.org. And again, as we keep saying, now's the time to do it because in this last little stretch of the fundraiser, that last mile as we talk about it, you're going to get a dollar-for-dollar match, making your monthly contribution go twice as far. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. Thank you so much for whatever you can give to WBUR. If you can't give, we understand. If you can, the fundraiser is coming to an end at 7 o'clock. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Make your pledge before then. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington. Ukraine is about to get more weapons and military equipment from the U.S. President Biden delivered the news to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky this afternoon. The $800 million in new security aid comes on top of more than $2.6 billion the Biden administration has already provided. This latest offering includes artillery systems, artillery rounds, armored personnel carriers, and helicopters. It could dramatically increase Ukraine's ability to withstand the Russian onslaught in the next phase of the war. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby joins me now to talk more about the package and what it could mean for Ukraine. Mr. Kirby, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you, Daniel. It's good to be with you today. Before we get to the new military aid, let's first talk about where the war is headed. Russian forces are gathering in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region. We are expecting a new assault. When might that happen and what might it look like? Difficult to know with great specificity exactly when uh, their their new offensive and push will occur to some degree. Elements of that have already started. They are uh, flowing in uh, fresh troops. They are flowing in uh, artillery, uh, even uh, helicopter support, as well as other uh, what we would call enablers, command and control capabilities into the Donbass region. So they are clearly doing what we call shaping. They're, they're setting the conditions for uh, eventual more, more aggressive military operations. In the meantime, the forces that retreated out of Kiev and out of Cherniv in the north are moving now to the east across Belarus and into Russia, uh, into uh, Belgorod, for instance, and Valayuki, uh, and beginning to refit, resupply, and get themselves ready for insertion. So, again, it's difficult to know exactly when um, uh, more aggressive operations are going to con- uh, be conducted, but uh, we don't believe uh, there's a whole lot of time between now and, and that moment. Uh, I would say uh, perhaps weeks at the outset, but but maybe not even that long. Weeks. Okay, so let's get to the, the new weapons package. The president's statement says that the U.S. is providing, quote, 
new capabilities tailored to the wider assault we expect Russia to launch in eastern Ukraine. What exactly is the U.S. providing that is tailored to fighting in the east? The most demonstrative example of that uh, is the howitzers, the 18 howitzers and the 40,000 rounds of artillery that go along with those howitzers. When you look at the Donbass region um, and you look at the kind of capabilities that the Russians are flowing in, they're also flowing in artillery and tanks, what we call long-range fires. Now, these are, uh, these are rounds, uh, these are rockets, um, these are shells uh, that are designed to cause damage from a distance, but not so far away as you need for a missile strike. So um, the Donbass region is relatively flat, not the same sort of uh, geography that you had up in the north of Ukraine, not wooded, not forested, not hilly. Um, and so it lends itself uh, to, to more conventional warfare like tanks and artillery. And so uh, that's, what we, uh, that's why uh, we put that in that package. It's also why if you look in that package, you'll see uh, counter-artillery radar, because that can be a real lifesaver for the Ukrainians, since we expect the Russians to use a lot of artillery in that region. The, this counter-artillery radar will help, help them defend against those threats. Well, can we, can we speak specifically about the Russian missile threat projectiles? Because so far, half of the missiles fired into Ukraine have, have been mostly fired from the outside, from Russia, Belarus, the sea. Uh, speak specifically about weapon, weaponry in this new package that can confront that missile threat. Well, in addition to, in addition to the counter-artillery radar, you'll, you'll see that there is an air defense radar, a portable towed from a vehicle uh, air defense radar system, several of them, as a matter of fact. Uh, and that will also help the Ukrainians uh, defend against airstrikes uh, in the Donbass. Now, I will add that the Ukrainians already have uh, long-range air defense at their capability. They have short-range air defense um, uh, as well. So this will add to their ability uh, to, to, uh, to deal with the increased air threat that will likely come from the Russians uh, from airstrikes and missile strikes. Okay. And you're right. They are flying most of their missions, the, 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 the manned missions. They are not venturing inside Ukrainian air, airspace because they know the Ukrainians have a sophisticated and nimble air defense capability. President Zelensky has been asking for more sophisticated weaponry since the very beginning of this war. Why didn't you give it to them earlier? We have been in constant con conversation with the Ukrainians about their needs, and the, the package that you're seeing today is, is actually an outgrowth of those conversations in just the last few days, talking to the Ukrainians about this fight in the Donbass and what they could really use. Uh, we have tailored each package uh, to what we think uh, they're going to need the most, and that conversation will continue going forward. Now, this is a huge package. Are you concerned Russia could see all this weaponry as an escalation? There's not a day that we don't think about escalation management, as we should. It's the responsible thing to do here at the Defense Department. But we also have a concomitant requirement and responsibility to help Ukraine defend itself against the kinds of threats that they're facing. And so every decision we make, we're balancing all that. But we're leaning as far forward as we can on helping Ukraine defend itself. That's the, that's the prerogative. That's the priority. Um, and uh, we can't predict perfectly how Mr. Putin is going to interpret these systems. Uh, but these are all systems designed to defend Ukraine, to help Ukraine defend itself. How quickly are you getting these weapons to the Ukrainians? Very quickly. Now, look, uh, I, I can't tell you that today, uh, you know, the first shipment is going to be uh, in the air, but it won't take long. In, in the past, in the last couple of packages that the president has signed, we've been able to go from the, the day he uh, authorizes it uh, to actually in the hands of Ukrainian fighters in as little, at least the initial shipments, in as little as six days. 
in a quick days. So answer. We're going to be moving very, very quickly here. How quickly can you get them trained up, the Ukrainians? So not all these systems are going to require training, Daniel. Maybe the artillery, perhaps the radar systems, and they are not that complicated. The Ukrainians know how to use artillery of their own. Uh, so we think we can begin doing some training of the trainers uh, in a very short period of time. And uh, that will obviously probably take place outside Ukraine, of course. John Kirby, Pre- Pentagon Press Secretary, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Renewable energy is a key tool for fighting climate change, but building the infrastructure to produce, say, wind or solar power can sometimes run into legal roadblocks, like laws aimed at protecting the environment. Darian Woods and Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain. So, Adrian, meet the Indiana bat. That's a bat? It is this cute little bat found in the Midwest. It's brown, it's found in caves. I didn't know that bats could tweet. That's adorable. (laughs) And look, it's an endangered species. It's in decline. And the reason I bring it up is because in 2006, there was this proposed wind farm in Ohio, 70 wind turbines, this big project. Local neighbors didn't like the idea of these towering turbines being so close to their land. And they sued the wind turbine company for all kinds of things. But one particular complaint stuck. They said that the turbines might hurt the bats. About five of these bats might die every year after colliding with the turbines. And after years of legal fighting and courtrooms all around the country, the wind farm company eventually gave up. The project was abandoned in 2019. And that is great for the Indiana bat, but not so good for wildlife in other parts of the world threatened by climate change, not to mention the hits to the economy from more floods and droughts. There is a long list of uh, challenges to wind and solar power facilities. J.V. Rule is a law professor at Vanderbilt University. J.V. says we've created all kinds of laws and regulations that allow people to challenge big projects like train stations, solar farms and wind farms. And that includes environmental laws. And, And that's great for getting local input and helping preserve communities, local landscapes, uh, endangered species. But... Given the urgency of climate change, JB says this is a problem and there had to be a better way. So he paired up with another law professor, James Saltzman, and they did what law professors do best. Right. So we're putting this issue in play and we think it needs to be seriously discussed. One idea that has allowed a lot of renewable energy projects to get built is in Texas. The state built a one-stop shop for renewable energy permitting. And the key difference with this new direction here is that Texas overrode local laws that might block the projects, including environmental laws. It was an amazingly efficient process for getting that infrastructure on the ground, not without controversy. JB says the federal government could take a similar approach. After all, he says it does have the power to kind of make exceptions for particular projects so they don't have to comply with every single regulation. Do we need some broader and more fundamental overhaul or reform of this system? But if you talk to environmental groups like the Nature Conservancy, they're not advocating for a large-scale rewrite of laws. For one thing, that could be used as a political opportunity to strip away environmental protections completely. Instead, they want changes like a faster pathway for green projects or improving initial site selection to avoid sensitive areas in the first place. Also, more federal funds to speed up decision making. So as this sort of nip and tuck, tweak it here, tweak it there version of environmental reform is going on, J.B. Rule, the law professor, 
he is seeing ice shelves break off in Antarctica, right? He's seeing historic heat waves and carbon emissions grow and grow. And he is worried that this is all going to be too little, too late. Given the scale of the challenge ahead, um, do you feel optimistic? Uh, I'm growing more pessimistic over time. I don't, um, I think we're, I think we're continuing to fall behind. Earlier this month, the UN issued another report that backed up JB's view. But it did say there's still time to change course. Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered. The family of a man who was killed in an accident on the MBTA's red line speaks out. That story is coming up next. On Wall Street, stocks rallied today with the Dow up a full percent, 344 points, to close at 34,565. S&P snapped a three-day losing streak. It gained one and a tenth percent to close at 44.47. The Nasdaq surged two percent to finish the session at 13,644. All the details coming up in just over an hour on Marketplace starting at 6.30. Sunshine still out there, mixed in with some clouds, nice and mild, about 70 degrees now in parts of the Boston area. Showers should move in tonight, not too chilly, just about 50 degrees. Then for tomorrow, overcast skies all day long, showers off and on, temperatures in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. It's 522. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Okay, here's the latest on our spring fund drive. It's almost over. It's over in one hour and about 40 minutes. And we really would love your pledge if you have yet to make one. By the way, for the thousands of people, somewhere over 37. 100 people right now have pledged during this fund drive. If you haven't, please do it right now because we have a matching grant on the table and we really want to make our goal. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins in the studio with Meghna Chakrabarty. And that matching grant means that when you call now and give your contribution to WBUR, it gets matched dollar for dollar, that monthly contribution. So if it's if you can give $10 a month, it becomes 20 thanks to a group of uh, generous listeners who are doing that dollar-for-dollar dollar match. Or if you can do $100 a month, it becomes 200 et cetera, et cetera. It's the lovely um, uh, expon- exponential rise <laughs> there. And you get all sorts of great reporting from everything from politics to international stories, foreign policy, and uh, stories about the environment, which WBUR is deeply 
committed to. And WBUR's environmental reporter Miriam Wasser, you might recall, she brought us an amazing three-part series that asked really insightful questions about the offshore wind industry here in Massachusetts. And so Miriam talked to us about why offshore wind is such an important story for all of us um, and and how uh, the war in Ukraine underscores that importance. Our world runs on energy. Energy is everywhere. It is turning on the lights. It's how you move your car. It's how we heat our buildings, which is a big deal here in New England. Like Energy is everywhere, and offshore wind has the potential to be a huge new thing within that. And the war in Ukraine has highlighted what a lot of environmentalists have been saying for a really long time, which is that there's a lot of vulnerability within a, a fossil fuel dominated world. And it'll be interesting to see whether or how the Biden administration sort of takes advantage of that and helps to kickstart a renewable energy revolution. That's Miriam Wasser, WBUR's environmental reporter. We have a whole environmental unit who's dedicated to asking those big questions uh, about the natural world and human beings' impact on it. And if you support that kind of reporting, which I hope you do, 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call right now. Especially while your pledge is matched dollar for dollar. Um, Just before uh, we uh, came on with business uh, a few minutes ago, we heard a story about green energy, uh, such as solar or wind power. One solution to fighting climate change, but sometimes environmental laws get in the way of building the infrastructure to produce green energy. So we dig beneath the surface on these stories. We ask the difficult questions, sometimes the unconventional questions. And that's one of the things I think people really appreciate about WBUR. Megna, you do that on On Point all the time. You challenge conventional wisdom. Um, you pose questions that are difficult to answer and that may be incredibly vexing, but are worth asking anyway. And that's one of the things I think people appreciate because nothing is easy. The news is not easy. Solutions are not easy as well. So for that kind of coverage that you get on WBUR that takes the time to pose these questions, that gives you answers that are designed to inform you, to edify you, not to tell you how to think, that's what you get when you listen to an editorially independent uh, radio station such as WBUR. You also get the same thing, of course, on WBUR.org. So pay for it right now. We have only about an hour and a half left in this fun drive. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I think our next WBUR t-shirt should say on the back, vexing but worth asking anyway. I yes, love that. I love that, Lisa. That's going to be yeah. my life's motto. <laughs> vexing, but worth asking anyway. one 800 909 Well, <laughs> other people have applied that label to me, for sure. But 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call, or WBUR.org, to support an organization that embraces Uh, the duty to ask those hard questions or to find the right people to tell us parts of the stories that we haven't heard before. Those are values at WBUR that we will stand by no matter what. We need your help to be sure to bring the stories that epitomize those values to the air. 1-800-909-9287. And please make the phone call while your pledge is being matched dollar for dollar. If you can do $15 a month, we will get $30 a month. If you can do 50, we get 100 and so on. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntingtons, Our Daughters Like Pillars, a stunning epic new play about the joys and tensions of sisterhood, now through May 8th, huntingtontheater.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating what happened on a red line train in South Boston early Sunday that caused a man to be dragged to his death. The MBTA is kept largely quiet, citing the ongoing probe. For the family of the man, it's been a little too quiet. WBUR's Daryl C. Murphy has more. Days after Robinson Lallan was killed, his nephew Kelvin Lallan took the red line to Broadway Station, the site of his uncle's last moments. He says he wanted to understand what happened. I could just just, just feel his fear. He was just here a few days ago, and now he's not here because this just literally just happened to him right here. According to the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, his uncle's arm got stuck in the door of the train. He was dragged to a gruesome death. It is still unclear why the door did not reopen to release Lallan as it is supposed to. The T has been tight-lipped about the incident since it is under federal investigation. But Kelvin says the family hasn't even received an offer of condolences from officials. They have not reached out, no contact, which is very frustrating. So he's just uh, uh, an animal, just he's a human being. We've got nothing so far. An MBTA spokesman did not confirm whether the T reached out to offer their sympathies. David White is a lawyer with the Boston law firm Breakstone, White & Gluck and has worked on cases against the T. He says he is unaware of any time the T has reached out to offer condolences to an injured party, though he says the law allows it. As long as you're not saying, for example, I'm sorry that I was negligent and that someone suffered injury, uh, you're not making an admission. But to simply say, I'm sorry, I'm very sorry, our condolences, our sympathies, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. The train operator has been taken off duty as the investigation continues. The train car involved in the incident is more than 50 years old. T General Manager Steve Poftak says the train has been taken out of service and he's confident that other older cars are in good condition. We've done a thorough inspection. Obviously, if we find anything, we will immediately course correct. Yes, we believe the rest of the fleet is safe. Lallan's family has started a GoFundMe campaign to cover the cost of a closed casket wake and funeral for the man who was more like a brother than an uncle. I'm just numb right now. Um, I miss my brother. I'm going to miss him. I can't even see him before I, I bury him. Like, it's, and it really sucks. A spokesperson for the National Transportation Safety Board says an investigation into the incident can take anywhere from one to two years, but a preliminary report may be available in about a month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Daryl C. Murphy. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Immersive Frida Kahlo, where visitors can discover the life, love, and art of the Mexican artist through a multimedia digital reimagining of her work set to a musical score. Now open at the Lighthouse Art Space at the Saunders Castle. Tickets available at immersive-frida.com. 
Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Police arrested the suspect in the shooting on a crowded rush hour subway train in Brooklyn yesterday that left more than 20 people injured, 10 of them shot. All are expected to survive. Frank R. James was apprehended this afternoon on a street in Manhattan. Prosecutors say James is facing a federal terrorism offense. The motive remains unclear. The White House has approved an additional $800 million in security assistance to Ukraine. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the aid comes as Russia shifts its military operation in the eastern part of the country. The White House says the latest weapons package would be a mixture of systems already deployed to the fight, as well as new capabilities tailored to the wider assault that Russia is expected to launch in eastern Ukraine. In a statement, President Biden said the new capabilities include artillery systems and armored personnel carriers, as well as the transfer of additional helicopters. NPR's Windsor Johnston. Companies have started to report earnings for the first quarter. As NPR's David Gura reports, they've had to deal with high inflation and Russia's invasion of Ukraine in the first three months of the year. J.P. Morgan Chase, the biggest bank on Wall Street, says its profit dropped by 42 percent from a year ago. All companies, including banks, have been dealing with what J.P. Morgan's CEO calls global turmoil, and Jamie Dimon says that's likely to continue. Dimon says he sees significant geopolitical and economic challenges ahead due to high inflation, supply chain issues, and the war in Ukraine. J.P. Morgan has been cutting its ties to Russia, and it's also preparing for the risk of a potential recession as the Federal Reserve gears up to hike interest rates aggressively to fight inflation. Several other big banks report earnings on Thursday, including Wells Fargo and Goldman Sachs. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu unveiled a nearly $4 billion city budget today. It's a 5.7% increase over the current budget. Over $300 million of spending would be funded by COVID relief money Boston received from the federal government. Mayor Wu says the money gives the city a chance to address several issues. Our goal was not only to put forth an operating budget and capital budget and schools budget that are fiscally sound and represent the delivery and continuance of city services, but to really tie in the federal recovery dollars so that we can do something special and transformative in this moment. The budget's largest allocation of federal relief money is $206 million for affordable housing. $31.5 million will fund efforts to fight climate change. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley joined Vice President Kamala Harris today to speak at a virtual event highlighting inequities that black women face when they give birth. According to the White House, black women are more than three times as likely to die from pregnancy-related complications as white women, regardless of income or education. WBR's Stevie Chapman has more. Experts say the disparities began with the segregation of hospitals. Black and brown women were not delivering in hospitals that had the resources to equip them, so we had to become birth attendants and midwives to deliver our own babies. Ndidiyamaka Amuta Onukaga is a professor of black maternal health at Tufts University. She said once licenses and certifications became a prerequisite for assisting in births, people of color were further left out. So that's something I'd love to see happen, that we create opportunities for the licensing, payment, and certification of more black midwives. She believes doing so is a step to creating an inclusive birth experience. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman.
Red Sox have just ended a winning series in Detroit today. Boston beat the Tigers 9-7 to in a nail-biter, their second win in three games. Boston had a big fourth inning with six runs. So long to Sox fans passing dollar bills down the aisle to the Cracker Jacks vendor. Fenway Park is going cashless for the 2022 Red Sox season. Team officials said today the ballpark will only accept credit cards or touchless payments from smartphones. Fans who need some assistance with the transition will be able to load cash onto prepaid debit cards at three different areas inside the ballpark. The home opener is Friday. In the forecast, a lovely evening, nice and mild. Showers move in tonight, not too chilly, about 50 degrees. Then for tomorrow, lots of clouds around, rain intermittently, highs in the mid-50s. Should see some sunshine and milder temperatures on Friday. 68 degrees now at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington. To the Texas-Mexico border now, where commercial trucks have been spending hours, some even days, waiting to enter the U.S. That is because Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered new inspections on all trucks crossing into his state from Mexico. He says these inspections are needed to combat drug smuggling and human trafficking. But critics from Mexico to the White House say it's an unnecessary PR stunt and that it's causing very real problems for businesses and consumers on both sides of the border. And protests are making the situation even worse. Texas Public Radio's Pablo de la Rosa joins us now from McAllen, Texas. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Pablo, what does it look like right now at the border? Well, local law enforcement has shut down all traffic lanes at the Reynosa Far International Bridge. That handles most of the commercial traffic that comes into Hidalgo County. We've seen hundreds of semi-trailer trucks queued on the Mexican side, and transport companies are actually refilling those trucks with diesel continuously to keep refrigeration on those trucks on and save as much product as possible. On top of that, truckers on the Mexican side have started a blockade in protest of these inspections that have caused delays. Now that's made the situation for traffic worse. Santos Alvarado is a commercial truck driver I spoke with who left one of his trucks in the blockade on the Mexican side and he says these protests began on Saturday. Alvarado is saying that the drivers who organized this blockade are prepared to continue this until inspections are terminated completely in the United States. And we have seen some change in the inspection policy starting today. Governor Greg Abbott announced in a press conference earlier today that Texas will pull back Texas Department of Public Safety inspections, but only at the International Bridge with Nuevo Leon, as that Mexican state has recently increased its security on the Mexican side. Okay, so the governor has announced he will stop these additional inspections at one border crossing. Uh, How is that going to change the situation at the border? Well, Nuevo Leon shares only 10 miles of border with Texas. It shares one international bridge, so it won't be a complete reversal to you know, some of the economic impact we've seen from this. 
Uh, does Mexico intend to reroute commercial traffic from Tamaulipas, maybe from Laredo, which is only 20 miles away and uh, is the busiest truck port in America carrying out of parts, electronics, produce, uh, northbound into the U.S. Maybe the governor will make the same deals at other bridges in the coming days. We have to watch uh, to see what happens. Okay. Now, critics say this decision by Governor Abbott to inspect incoming trucks is causing uh, supply chain concerns. Could you tell us more about that? Right. Trade groups are calling this a supply chain crisis, and they're seeing millions of dollars uh, being lost per day. The White House, the Department of Homeland Security, even Customs and Border Protection, they've all issued press releases saying that this is unnecessary and it's being caused by the Texas Department of Public Safety at the order of Abbott. Even some Republicans in Texas have criticized Abbott for saying, uh, for, for doing this, saying it's hurting business, it's hurting consumers. And on the Mexican government side, they've been relatively quiet on the issue. Again, the governor of Nuevo León working with uh, Abbott on this issue. Uh, they haven't yet uh, criticized the governor publicly on it. Okay. Texas Public Radio's Pablo De La Rosa reporting from McAllen, Texas and the Rio Grande Valley. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. Fighting misinformation can be tricky. We question people in power. We want to hear from people in power, but we want to deliver their statements in context, surrounded by facts, which is what you deserve. It takes resources to get it right, and we can't do that without your support. Help us by giving to this station. Thanks. Please give right now because we have one hour and 20 minutes left in this fundraiser for the springtime. We need to make our goal because the stronger we are, then the more information, news you get, up-to-date news and information that helps you understand the news around us. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins in the studio with Magna Chakrabarty. And I have a great job today. One of those is to you tell always you... always have a great job, Magna. <laughs> no, I have a great every job day. every day, but usually it doesn't come at 540 in the afternoon. That's, That's your true. great job, Lisa. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to just be Lisa's wingman, wingwoman, wingperson here today and remind you that first of all, because it is 540, we've just got an hour and 20 minutes left in our spring fundraiser. And so, oh, I get it. Maybe you're just a natural procrastinator or maybe you operate best on deadline. We have a lot of those personalities around here. Well, the deadline is now. The deadline has arrived because this all wraps up at seven o'clock. And in order to induce you to make it to the deadline, we're having a dollar for dollar match for your monthly contributions uh, when you call 1-800-909-9287. And here's another reason why I think you should do this now. It's the totality of the coverage that WBUR brings, including in arts and culture. So here's Tanya Rally. She's assistant managing editor of arts and culture at WBUR. And she talked with us about how arts coverage really adds to the richness of the quality of life. This is a, a great way to find out about things happening in the city that are just intellectually stimulating, that are also just enlightening, and in a way, I suppose that also just sort of feed the soul. I mean, as things in the world have felt so dire, we've been living with the pandemic now for going into our third year, and it's just good to remember um, how important art is in these times. And so this is what we're interested in offering to our audiences. 
1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. What Tanya said is absolutely correct. Uh, knowledge and understanding <clears throat> it through the arts and basically through any kind of lens we can look at through the environment, uh, through um, geopolitics, understanding that information contributes to the fabric of life, and that's what you get from WBUR, and understanding sometimes news that is entertaining, but always news that adds to your life, and we hope that right now you will pay us back for that, because basically we only have you to help us support that kind of coverage. one 800 9289 is the phone number, or WBUR.org. We are entering uh, almost the last hour of this fun drive. It's over at 7 o'clock tonight. We, by the way, want to mention that we are so grateful for every listener who has called in. Every single pledge makes a difference. We were lucky enough to have Dr. Joe Rush earlier today give a $100,000 gift to WBUR, and he says simply, the work we do is important. If you believe the work we do is important, and we bet you do or you wouldn't be listening right now, please make your own pledge of support. If you can do $10 a month, $20 a month in a contribution, that would make a big difference for us because as very generous as Dr. Rush was, it didn't uh, put us over the top on what we need to raise during this fund drive. Every single contribution counts. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Again, 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call, and every dollar we put it to work immediately. Whether your contribution is $10 a month or, as Dr. Rush so generously gave us, it's a $100,000 contribution or anything in between. We're grateful for every single person who calls in or hops online and gives us, uh, trusts us, entrusts us with your hard-earned money to do something with it that creates better value for this community. And that value is journalism, high quality journalism, news and stories that inform the community about happenings in our own backyards through all the way across to the other side of the world. Because we all know that informed an informed community is one of the cornerstones of a strong democracy, and that's why we do this every single day. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call, or if you can, and it's easier, go ahead to WBUR.org. We're going back to, <clears throat> excuse me, been going back to all things considered now, but first we hope that you will remember the fun drive is over in just an hour and 15 minutes. We really do count on you to help us fund any of the news that's coming up in the days, weeks, months ahead. We need to be strong so the information that you get is accurate, strong, quality information that enriches your life. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Elsa Chang. Until February 24th, Europe had mostly found ways to get along with Vladimir Putin's Russia. 
The full-scale invasion of Ukraine ended that era with ripple effects along the thousand miles of Russia's border with the EU. NPR's Quill Lawrence sends this report from the northern tip of that border in Arctic Norway. The city of Hirkenes is Norway's best-known border town with Russia. Lately, it's also known for its hockey team. That's thanks to this television series about the Hirkenes Puckers. They play in a mostly Russian hockey league. What are all these up here? Some are um, gifts from all the Russian teams. On a recent visit, the Puckers' home rink in Hirkenes doesn't really live up to the hype. The city is 250 miles north of the Arctic Circle. So while the rink doesn't melt, it does often get covered with snow and the city snowplows are sometimes too busy. Two players still showed up hoping for a game. One of them came by bicycle. It's snowing outside. There's four inches of snow on the rink. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it's uh, negative. Is it zero or negative one outside? Maybe. I think it's minus four. Minus think, four. Yeah. We're in the Arctic. It's dark out. It's a Tuesday night, and you still came out to play hockey. So Yeah, of course. <laughs> Because it's fun. <laughs> and to get some exercise and, yeah, have fun. Are Draglam plays on the adult team. There's a kids' league, too. The Puckers' slogan translates as busting down borders. But that border is now firmly shut. There's no telling when it will be back. The matches will be back on again, but uh, I hope the league will survive. Uh, I think in some months or, uh, or weeks, uh, that's no problem. But uh, many years might be a problem. But, uh, yeah, we just have to wait and see what happens in the world. And then there's the Puckers' star center. My first uh, trip to Russia was in uh, 1995. Then I played the European Championship for Women's in Yaroslav. Guru Bransog sees the hockey team as an embodiment of the city's philosophy and as its survival strategy. People living up here, we, we, we need to feel secure. And I think we managed to have a low tension between the neighboring countries up here in the north by cooperating in areas where we can cooperate, like in science, like in people-to-people -people relations, like in also business relations. Bransog also serves as CEO of the Hirkenes Conference. It's a kind of business summit between Russia and Norway. This year was the 14th annual, and it started out okay. So on Wednesday the 23rd, I welcomed our foreign minister and the Russian ambassador. Uh, already then it was some tension, but I think for, for the people that visited the conference, they were most happy uh, in a way we were heading out of the corona pandemic. Norway had eased all its mask mandates and people were just happy to meet in person again. And then we woke up on the morning on the 24th. We had on the second day of the conference, and the Russian had started bombing Ukraine. It was a huge shock. People were, were actually crying. They were so, yeah, it was a huge shock. Many people up here in Chirkinas that they thought, we, we never thought he would be that crazy. I think that we see when, what Putin are really capable of. I th yeah, we've been questioning ourselves. It's been sobering, she says, to hear friends in Russia enthusiastically supporting Putin. She doesn't question the need to sanction Russia, but Bransog also worries that the sanctions will mostly hurt regular Russians. And it's not just the Russian economy. Here in Hirkenes, about 70% of the economy depends on crossing the border, says Thomas Nielsen with the Barents Observer newspaper. The 24th of February was the real reality check for this uh, town. Everyone that had a hope of open door, cross-border, free 
trade uh, relation uh, with Russia uh, lost all that hope. So everything that has been built up over the last 30 years was just washed out in a few days. I mean, we, we are seeing the Iron Curtain coming back. That Iron Curtain severed personal ties, economic links, and even efforts toward mutual survival, Nilsson says. For years, Norway had been helping Russia safely dispose of spent fuel rods from its aging nuclear submarines, which were stationed up here in the Arctic. Nilsson sent us to see the Norwegian nuclear scientists who are now stuck at their research station on the border. I drive there in 45 minutes, but you will, you, you should uh, spend an hour on the road. Right. White knuckle driving in what most people not from the Arctic would call a blizzard to the park station, where we meet a man who collects dust from the wind. So my name is uh, Bredo Müller, and I work with the Norwegian Radiation Safety Authority. Muller takes us outside across a snowy field to see his machines. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> this is actually a lot of snow. It's And laughs when I sink through the crust of snow up to my waist. Oh, my God. The, uh, do you mind? C- can I take a picture of you? Is that okay? This is perfect. <laughs> then he flips open the hood of his filter. It looks like a white mushroom cap the size of a washing machine. You see? So this is the... Uh, air sampler we're talking about so this has been running here for 25 years non-stop 24 7 so if the concentration are getting too uh, high enough it will also trigger an alarm muller collects dust off the filter screen and then back at the lab he puts it into one of two thick kegs these are called um, high purity germanium detectors and these can detect very, very small trace level amounts of radioactive particles. And with that, he can read the signature, tell if the radiation comes from a source in Europe or from the still hot Chernobyl site, or if it's a new leak. And then we, we alert internally if we see something we should normally not see. If something pops hot, he's got a landline telephone to Oslo. You know, that's uh, more or less why we're here, of course, uh, to monitor what's on the other side of the border, just a few kilometers from here. In a way, you can say uh, we are some, some kind of a nuclear watchdog on the border to Russia. That's to prevent one of the world's biggest nuclear waste dumps in Russia from polluting the pristine waters of the Arctic and to stop spent fuel rods from getting stolen and used for terrorism in a dirty bomb. Muller says just last November, Norway marked 25 years of cooperation on this, and he went to Murmansk, Russia, for a celebration with his colleagues, who are his friends. So uh, I have many friends, Nikolai, and uh, we have Sasha, and we have Olva, and all of these people are now in in Murmansk, I know, just um, shaking their heads like me now and waiting for this to end. He's certain that his Russian friends there oppose the war in Ukraine like he does. They just can't speak out right now. But it's chilling that many local officials across the border, as well as 700 rectors and university presidents in Russia, issued statements supporting Putin. And that makes Brito Muller worry that even this vital work might not resume soon. It will take many, many years, I'm afraid, to get back to that trust that we have been gained through these 25 years of cooperation. It is, uh, yeah, it is a bit frightening times. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Hirkenes in the Arctic Circle, Norway.
When Russian troops withdrew from towns around Ukraine's capital, they left devastation behind. Is this a sign of what's to come in eastern Ukraine, where the next Russian offensive looms? We'll examine that on NPR's next Consider This podcast. This is NPR News. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep. NPR News is dedicated to bearing witness to the war in Ukraine. Our journalists are on the ground bringing you the voices of people at the heart of the story. It's work that takes resources to do well and takes resources to do safely. It happens because of listeners who support this NPR station. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Please do that right now. We have just $9,000 left in our match, in our uh, uh, double match right now on the table. So please don't miss the chance to get your gift to WBUR doubled. Just one hour and five minutes left to go in the spring fund drive. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And as you just heard, NPR and WBUR are going the extra mile to keep you as informed as possible about the events regarding the war in Ukraine. And, um, you know, the network and, and BUR have some significant expertise in stories like this. I mean, NPR correspondent Eleanor Beardsley spent a lot of time in Ukraine around the time of Russia's annexation of Crimea back in 2014. And, of course, she's been back in Ukraine most recently covering uh, Russia's invasion. And so Eleanor talked with us about the disinformation that she says is central to that invasion. When I was in Ukraine in 2014, I saw it firsthand. I was with a Ukrainian fixer from Donetsk, and he said, you can't believe what they're saying. They've cut all the Ukrainian media, and the Russians are saying this. And they would be saying things that were untrue. I was there on the ground. I knew it. And I thought, well, people will find out the truth. People never found out the truth. And it hardened, and it continued, and it amplified. And this is where it has led a, com- a, a full-out war. So I would say America should be frightened because we have disinformation in our country, and it doesn't just go away. You have to fight it, and it can lead to some very bad things. So when I'm reporting on Ukraine, I want to make sure people know how we came to where we are today. It wasn't just by accident, and it wasn't because people hated each other. They were stoked. The angers, the fears, the differences, the confusion was completely stoked by misinformation. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR correspondent, You know, it's absolutely right that we have to analyze with that critical eye events, no matter how far they are around the world, and ask ask ourselves, how do they apply to our lives here in Massachusetts, here in New England? There's an answer to that every single time, and we seek those answers here at WBUR, and that's why you call 1-800-909-9287 or support us by giving through WBUR.org. And there's a reason why you've chosen to listen to WBUR. I don't think it's a casual decision. You don't say it's BUR or it's any other station on the dial. It's because you know that we fight fight disinformation, we fight misinformation, we place a premium on the truth on uh, stories that are complex and don't necessarily have black or white answers, but those that do, we are there to to set you straight, to set the record straight as well, and we know that's what you count on us to do. So please, right now, make a pledge as we count our way down in this fun drive. We have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table just as an added incentive for you to give right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. So please, if you make a $10 a month contribution, it becomes $20, $15, becomes 30 for us, and so on. Please make the call now. And in honor of Marathon Monday coming up, this is like me running 
13 miles, 13.1 miles, and saying that I've run the entire Boston Marathon. <laughs> I couldn't even do 13.1 miles. So my hat's off to all you actual half marathoners out there, too. But the point is, is you get to make your efforts. In this case, your contributions go twice as far. Going twice as far in this case to help WBUR bring you the news, information, stories, voices, eye-opening surprises that you rely on, that you need, that you thrill to every day. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. We don't trade in innuendo. We don't trade in opinion masquerading as news. What we present for you is news that is honest, that is truthful to the extent that we can get it the truth. And as you heard Eleanor Beardsley say, disinformation is stoked, it's cultivated and nurtured. We consider it our job to cultivate and nurture the truth and foster understanding with every story that we present. So that must be worth something to you because you listen to it, because you go to WBUR.org. Put a dollar value on it. Know that that dollar will be doubled right now. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. This spring fund drive has been a major endeavor. We're so grateful to everyone who has called in your pledge. That's more than 3,700 listeners who've called in or gone to WBUR.org. The fundraiser is over in one hour, so make your pledge now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs from hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens. The full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews all in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. I'm here now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Authorities in New York City have arrested the lone suspect in yesterday's subway shooting that injured 23 people. He faces a federal terrorism charge. Those NPR's Quill Lawrence reports from Brooklyn, it's not yet known what precipitated the attack. New York City Police Commissioner Keishant Sewell says after a nerve-wracking 30-hour manhunt, 62-year-old Frank R. James is in custody. Literally, hundreds of NYPD detectives worked doggedly during the last 30 hours to bring this together. We hope this arrest brings some solace to the victims and the people of the city of New York. Those wounded and injured in the shooting and the panicked rush that followed included several children. Authorities flooded public airwaves and media with surveillance pictures of James, and after a tip line call, he was apprehended without incident in Manhattan. Police said they had collected evidence including the gun, a rented U-Haul van, and the clothes James is seen wearing during the alleged attack. The motive is still unclear. Investigators are still reviewing social media posts linked to the suspect. 
Will Lawrence, NPR News, New York. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is extending an order requiring masks on planes, trains, and transport hubs. As NPR's Ping Wong reports, the change comes as coronavirus cases have started to rise. Anyone traveling on planes and public transportation will be required to mask up through May 3rd. That's because the CDC has extended their order requiring face masks during travel. The order has been in place for over a year and was set to expire on Monday. The CDC says they've extended the mask mandate to assess the potential impact of rising cases on severe illness and healthcare capacity. In the past month, the BA2 subvariant of Omicron has taken over, and in the past two weeks, COVID cases have been ticking up in states in the Northeast and Southwest. Ping Huang, NPR News. President Biden says he's approved an additional $800 million in new military assistance for Ukraine. That funding will include artillery and helicopters, as well as other items needed to bolster the country's defense. But expectations a wider assault is coming in eastern Ukraine. Prices at the wholesale level rose faster than expected last month. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the producer price index jumped more than 11 percent over the past 12 months. Consumer prices were up sharply last month, but wholesale prices jumped even more rapidly. Another sign of the inflationary pressures facing the economy during its rapid recovery from the pandemic. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has added new wrinkles, pushing up costs for commodities such as crude oil, wheat and sunflower oil. The retail price of gasoline continues to slide. AAA says the average price of regular gas dropped another penny and a half overnight. It's down about 25 cents a gallon since hitting an all-time high last month. A big jump in airfares was one of the factors pushing up inflation in March. As travel picked up, Delta Airlines now says it expects to return to profitability this spring. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow is up 344 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts House 2023 budget proposal released today omits tax breaks that Governor Charlie Baker had called for. The nearly $50 billion package is more than 4% larger than this year's budget. And while state revenue this year is $2 billion more than projected, House Speaker Ron Mariano says he would rather bank that money in case there's an economic downturn. The full House takes up the proposal a week from Monday. A protester arrested yesterday at Boston City Hall is free today after pleading not guilty to assault charges. Police removed Catherine Vitale from City Hall after she used a megaphone to disrupt a news conference held by Mayor Michelle Wu. The Dorchester woman was arrested after police say she pushed an officer while trying to get back inside City Hall. And longtime Boston College men's hockey coach Jerry York has announced his retirement. York has spent the last 28 years with the Eagles and has the most wins of any coach in college hockey. The 76-year-old Hockey Hall of Famer says he plans to travel and spend more time with his family. In sports, Red Sox finished off the Tigers today with a 9-7 win. Boston took two out of three in Detroit. Opening day at Fenway Park is Friday against the Twins. And Fenway Park is going cashless for the 2022 season. You'll just need a credit card, prepaid debt card, or touchless payment from a smartphone. So no more passing cash with the Fenway Frank and Mustard down the aisle. In the forecast, a beautiful evening. Look for some clouds to increase overnight tonight. Temperatures right about 50 degrees, maybe the mid-50s. And then for tomorrow, look for gray skies all day long. Lots of showers as well in the mid to upper 50s. This is WBUR at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Back to All Things Considered with the latest from Ukraine coming up in just about two and a half minutes. But first, just a very quick reminder, this fundraiser, spring fundraiser, is over in 55 minutes. We would love for you to get your gift in because right now we have a a dollar-for-dollar match on the table. And Megna, how much money do we have left in that match? We only have $7,500 left in that matching money. So that means that that group of generous listeners who are wanting to do that dollar-for-dollar match, they put a pot of money out there for us to try to aim for. And there's only $7,500 left in that pot. So let's... Let's do it. Let's let's con- let's finish up the matching money here. But you've got to call. You've got to contribute so that that money can be matched. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven is the number to call or wbur.org. You know what really hurts when we have to leave money on the Ugh, table, and we don't we yeah. don't want to do that. So please make your pledge of support right now because the the more we can uh, get in terms of gifts from you during these fundraisers, the more we're set to provide you news and information um, uh, 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 that is excellent that you will not get anywhere else in the years and in the months and in the days to come. We don't know what's coming down the pike in terms of news, but we need to be prepared for it. And the money you give right now, especially if you give monthly right now, it is a safety net that we have when the news tosses us a curveball. So please make your monthly pledge right now. It can be $10, it can be $20 a month, and it will be matched dollar for dollar right now. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. Again, only $7,500 left in that matching money. So whether you can give $10 a month, maybe 20 or 50 $100 a month, whatever is in your budget, it will go twice as far if you get that contribution in time to take advantage of this dollar-for-dollar match. We've only got less than an hour now in the fundraiser as a whole. So let's finish strong. 1-800-909-9287. Every single phone call, every single gift to WBUR makes a difference in our budget. And what happens in our budget makes a difference in what happens on the air. So keep us strong. We all benefit from that. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington. Some 4,500 civilians have been killed and injured in Ukraine, according to the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights. The office acknowledges that estimate is likely too low due to the difficulty in reaching areas still under siege. And on the battlefield, casualty numbers are likely to be many times greater than that. Despite the mounting human costs, Western governments are warning that the Russian military is preparing for a renewed effort to advance in eastern Ukraine. NPR's Tim Mack joins us now from central Ukraine. Hi, Tim. Hey there. Let's start with the battlefield situation. What is the latest there? Well, since the withdrawal of Russian troops from the area around the capital city of Kyiv, Ukraine has been bracing for a renewed offensive, and there are some signs that it could be coming soon. Uh, British intelligence has predicted that the fighting will intensify in eastern Ukraine over the next two to three weeks. And today, a senior U.S. defense official says that Russian forces are staging in and around the eastern Ukrainian area known as the Donbass. These military forces include things like ground troops and artillery and helicopters. 
Meanwhile, in the south, the city of Mariupol, which has been the scene of heavy fighting over the past few weeks, still remains contested, that U.S. official said. It remains a focus of the Russian Air Force's combat missions over the last day and over the last days and weeks. Despite a devastating weeks-long Russian assault, though, Mariupol has stubbornly held out, even as soldiers have run low on ammo and tens of thousands of civilians have been living in dire conditions with dwindling supplies of food and water. Wow. So with a new Russian offensive apparently in the works, uh, tell us about what the U.S. is doing to ramp up its support for Ukraine. Well, President Biden and President Zelensky actually talked by phone today, and in a statement, Zelensky said they spoke about evaluating Russian war crimes and also military aid. Uh, Biden announced this afternoon he had signed off on another $800 million in military aid, and specifically the kinds of weapons that were being delivered were, quote, tailored to the wide assault we expect Russia to launch in eastern Ukraine. So this new American aid will include things like artillery, armored personnel carriers, helicopters. What is really clear is that all sides expect violence to continue and in the coming days and weeks even escalate in eastern Ukraine. And one big question is whether the U.S. equipment and the training necessary to operate that American equipment can be delivered in time to make a difference. Right. Now, President Biden's assessment of Russia's war also seems to have shifted in recent days. He took the step of calling Russian actions in Ukraine a, quote, genocide. What has been the reaction there in Ukraine and and around the world? Well, yeah, the images and information from the war have have prompted Biden to take that step. He chose not to use the term genocide until Tuesday, when during remarks in Iowa, he used it while describing Vladimir Putin's actions. And when asked to explain, he said he used the term genocide because Putin had been, quote, trying to wipe out the idea of even being able to be Ukrainian. Zelensky praised Biden's use of the term, saying that they were, quote, true words of a true leader. Zelensky also added that, quote, calling things by their names is essential to stand up to evil. But French President Emmanuel Macron pushed back against the use of the term, saying that it was an escalation of rhetoric and that it might not be helpful in ending the war between Russia and Ukraine. NPR's Tim Mack in central Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you. About 30 hours after a mass shooting in the New York City subway, Mayor Eric Adams had this to say. My fellow New Yorkers, we got it. We got it. The suspect, Frank James, is accused of firing 33 times on a subway train during rush hour yesterday morning. No one died, but 10 people were shot and several others were hurt in the incident. NPR's Jasmine Garst joins us now from New York. Hi, Jasmine. Hi. All right, so what more can you tell us about this arrest? Frank James is believed to be the shooter, and he was apprehended on a Manhattan street corner just a few hours ago at around 1.45 p.m. this afternoon. Uh, He's 62 years old. He was arrested without incident. Bystander videos show police taking him into custody, and it came from a tip. Wow. Okay, so what do we know about this man so far? What we know about him so far is that he had a myriad of prior arrests from various states dating back to the early 90s. And they range from criminal sex acts to theft. Uh, He seems to have lived a very chaotic life, moving across cities and states. And he also posted quite a few videos on YouTube and Facebook criticizing New York Mayor Eric Adams and 
criticizing his policies on crime and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And he talked about having PTSD. Um, I'm sure in the coming days, a a much clearer picture is going to emerge. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, at this point, what comes next in the investigation? Well, first off, authorities still don't know why he allegedly went on this attack yesterday. Mm -hmm. He is now facing federal charges and up to life in prison for this. So to that end, authorities made it clear this investigation remains open and they are still asking for tips on how and why James did this. Okay, well, while his motive remains unclear, you know, the shooting it occurred as New Yorkers are being asked to start commuting back to their offices just as COVID numbers are declining. And Jasmine, I understand that you were on the subway today. Like, what was the mood on these trains? What did it feel like to be inside? Well, this is a notoriously tough city. Almost everyone I spoke to told me they were just trying to go about their day as usual. In recent months, there have been very violent incidents on the subway, some deadly. Carlos Manobanda uh, was heading to a doctor's appointment this morning, and he said he was a little bit nervous. I I asked him, what would make you feel better right now? Uh, More police uh, activity, interaction with uh, customers and uh, presence, more presence, I think. I heard this from a few people on the subway this morning, but you know, a lot of people I spoke to also told me they don't think the answer is more police. They pointed out that NYPD has already increased police presence in the subways before this latest shooting happened. Eli Garcia was heading to work and he told me he wasn't nervous. He just felt that this was an anomaly. And and I asked him what should be done to avoid these types of violent outbursts. Fund services that will help to people that need the help, like homeless services, mental health are a great start. And this is kind of at the heart of the debate here in New York City. And, and I think in cities across the U.S., we're seeing gun violence rise. And, and the question is, is the solution more police, better mental health and homeless services, all of the above? It's hard to say. Yeah. Well, I know that there was some criticism of how long it took to find this suspect. What do you make of that criticism? Was it fair? Well, you know, uh, this has to do with the fact that at least one of the cameras at the station where the shooting happened weren't working. And people I spoke to today did express that. Uh, We pay taxes. We pay the transit system. Why don't we get the basics? That is NPR New York correspondent Jasmine Garst. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Thank you. To honor Poetry Month, we're hearing from the four finalists to become the 2022 National Youth Poet Laureate. Today, we meet the South Regional Ambassador. My name is Isabella Ramirez. I am a queer Latinx poet from Lake Worth, Florida, but I'm currently studying at Columbia University in New York City. Ramirez found her love for poetry attending slam poetry competitions in South Florida. It was really seeing other people perform that really inspired me the most to start my own journey as a poet. I think there's just nothing more powerful than youth poetry and youth voices. And really, it's just like us coming together and listening and having this really punchy, powerful moments together and snaps and hollers and whoops and like all of these emotions coming together. Her poem, Mama pays homage to her mother for supporting her. It also shares how she supported her mother when she attended graduate school in her 40s. I'm sitting on my mama's bed, and she's on the brink of breaking down over her homework. 
I can see the glint of a blinking cursor and the tears glossing over her eyes as her hands search for words in a language all too foreign to her. Being an immigrant and having English um, as your second language, you don't realize how difficult it is to be in the same spaces as your peers who speak English as a first language and be expected to do the same workload when your brain thinks and is bilingual. Your brain is thinking in two languages. So um, that's sort of where in my junior year, I really became that support for my mother. And I, I saw her grow in such a tremendous way. And it felt like a paying back. I um, mean, I know I can never truly pay back my mother for, for the years that she has spent being there for me. But I think to some extent, I was able to do that for her. My mama's English gets told it's pretty good for being an immigrant, to which she replies, you've got some nerve for being a gringa because my mama wasn't a stay-at-home mom for 15 years to be told that her English still has cleaning to do. Her Spanish to me is why I speak Spanish. It's why, you know, I'm able to celebrate my culture and even write in a way that is in both English and Spanish. So I think there is, I'm not just exploring her English, I'm exploring all of the language that we share together and she has imparted to me. My mama's English is the reason I can tell her in two ways that she is my everything, mi todo, because her love knows no language. Isabella Ramirez is a finalist for this year's National Youth Poet Laureate. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking business on Wall Street stocks rallied today. The Dow was up a full percent, 344 points, to close at 34,565. SP snapped a three day losing streak. It gained one and a tenth percent to close at 4447. The Nasdaq surged 2% to finish the session at 13,644. It's been a lovely day today. Pretty warm out there still right now. Look for clouds and a few showers moving in tonight, though. Not too chilly. Lows about 50. Tomorrow should be gray all day long with some showers off and on. Highs only in the mid-50s. Could have some sun and milder temperatures moving in on Friday. 68 degrees in the Boston area at 621. WBUR supporters include Semester Off an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. My name is Layla Falden, and I'm one of the hosts of Morning Edition and the Up First podcast. I started as an overnight newspaper reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, found myself on a plane to Baghdad a year later covering the impact of a U.S. invasion, occupation, and war in that country, then traveled across the Middle East and North Africa with short trips into Europe sometimes, and then back to the United States covering this country, its divisions, the things that unite and divide people. I get the privilege and honor of going into people's homes, of listening to people's stories. That's a gift. 
I think it's incredibly important to keep those in power accountable, but also to spend as much time speaking to those impacted by the policy decisions. That, for me, is what I bring to the host chair. I'm Leila Faldil. Support this NPR station today. Here's how to give. You can give right now, and we hope you will, by calling 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org because we have uh, just about 38 minutes left in this fund drive. It is over in 38 minutes, and that means that uh, your chance to call right now and have your dollar matched is right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Megna, how much do we have left in this matching grant? We just have $4,900 left. Wow. So uh, just a couple minutes ago, it was $7,500. Now it's down to $4,900. Thank you. So yes, thank you to everyone who called in um, and has already made the decision to take advantage of this match, a dollar-for-dollar dollar match on your monthly contribution. Let's Keep going strong and finish this off and not leave any money on the table. Just $4,900 left in this dollar-for-dollar uh, dollar match. So call 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You know when you call WBUR what you're going to get on, on uh, for your end of the deal when you make an investment in this station. You are going to get the highest quality news and information, uh, news that has been vetted, news that fights disinformation, that cultivates honesty. Honesty that cultivates um, uh, news that is accountable. This is the kind of thing that you turn to WBUR for. You get it with your donation because we are as strong as your donations let us be. So right now, it's a great chance for you to be able to match your gift. $10 a month, $20 a month, dollar for dollar. Thanks to some really generous WBUR listeners for whom to whom we are uh, in great debt because we are able to act as uh, use these grants as a way to incentivize you if you need incentive to call WBUR, especially right now when we are just about 35 minutes away from the end of this fund drive. It ends at 7 o'clock. So once again, please make the call 1-800-909-9287 or online at WBUR.org. I mean, what what, what more do you need? We have this dollar for dollar match. Your money's going to go twice as far. Okay, if that's not enough, there's a t-shirt still. We're not talking about the t-shirt There's very much. A t-shirt. But I know some folks love wearing their WBUR swag. So for at least $10 a month, you, A, you get the money to go twice as far due to that dollar-to-dollar match. And hey, we'll throw in a t-shirt um, as well so you can strut around Greater Boston in Pride. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And of course, what you really get is WBUR, a strong, independent, um, editorial affairs, editorially fair station that takes its commitment to journalism dead seriously. So 800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And I think you do too. You must because you listen to us when you could listen to any station on the dial. So please make your phone call right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org because I know that you want to know the t-shirt is short-sleeved and mustard-colored and made of cotton. It feels really comfortable but is not the least bit frayed. It's absolutely new, totally worth your $10 a month contribution right now, which by the way will be doubled 1-800-909-9287 or wbur.org the fundraiser is over in 34 minutes please call now and make your gift to wbur thank you this is all things considered from npr news i'm elsa chang in los angeles and i'm daniel estrin in washington 
Do sanctions work? That is a question worth asking as U.S. and other Western nations keep hammering Russia with economic sanctions. If the war in Ukraine drags on for months or even years, how many more sanctions can the West impose? And what is the end game? Emma Ashford is an expert on foreign policy at the Atlantic Council, and she joins me now to talk about this. Welcome to All Things Considered. Great to be here. Russian President Vladimir Putin said yesterday the new sanctions did, quote, achieve certain results. So how have sanctions impacted Russia's economy? So far, the sanctions that we've put on Russia's economy have caused the ruble to go into decline. I think up to 600 multinational corporations have left Russia. Um, And so the Russian economy is suffering from sanctions. What we don't know yet is the extent of that suffering and whether or not it will translate into, into any actual policy change. Well, first, how are these sanctions harming ordinary Russians who have nothing to do with the war? I mean, I've spoken to people in Russia who say it's hard to travel abroad now. It's hard to even access foreign-made medicines. Inflation is high. So how do these sanctions affect the ordinary person? In theory, targeted financial sanctions are meant to hit a government and not the people within a country. But in practice, that's very difficult to do. What we actually see in much of the studies that have been done on sanctions is that leaders, particularly in authoritarian states, are very good at insulating themselves from the effects of sanctions. Certainly, Vladimir Putin himself has been sanctioned. The people around him have all been. But that doesn't necessarily mean that their lifestyles at home are going to suffer. They may be able to pass some of that burden on to other people inside Russia. Mm. And so this, again, is one of those big problems. And unfortunately, the history of sanctions suggests that we're good at causing the economic pain. We're not good at getting policy changes out of it. Well, this is fascinating. And I think this is the time to just step back and ask, what is the actual goal of these new sanctions on Russia? I mean, is it to end the war or is it to topple Putin? It depends who you ask, to be perfectly honest. These sanctions were initially intended to deter the Russians from invading. That obviously didn't work. So now the sanctions are in place. They are supposed to be putting pressure on the Russian government to end the war. That doesn't appear to be happening so far. And it's not clear whether even more sanctions would necessarily do that. So then you get into this question that often arises. How long do you leave the sanctions on? And over time, does the goal sort of just shift from concrete policy change, like end the war, over to something more akin to weakening the Russian government over the long term? And I fear that that's where we're sort of sliding into with the Russia sanctions. Now, of course, we are in a globalized economy. Some nations are dependent on Russian exports like gas and oil. How will that factor into how long the West can keep imposing these sanctions? The sanctions that we have already imposed, those can be maintained for quite a long time, I would think. The interesting question is about the sanctions that we have not yet imposed. And and I Mm. think it's very doubtful that we're going to see Europe impose large-scale energy sanctions simply because European economies are so dependent on that gas that it would almost certainly cause a recession. That is the sort of step that might actually push the Russian government to think twice about the war in Ukraine, but it's one that I think the West simply can't sustain right now. What about lifting some sanctions? Could that actually incentivize Russia to change course? So if we wanted to get something out of these sanctions, 
with Russia, one of the best things that we could do is be specific about the ways in which those sanctions could be raised in exchange for Russia stopping conflict, withdrawing some of its forces, you know, a phased approach to lifting them that could help to end the conflict. Um, unfortunately, and again, as we've seen in many previous cases, that can be politically problematic. You can imagine how difficult it would be even here in the US to talk about lifting sanctions on Russia after everything that has happened in the last month and a bit. Emma Ashford is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th. SemesterOff.com.